0: Hello, welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're really pleased to have you tuned in.
1: These people, the prophets and the priests, were supposed to heal the wound of my people. What's the biggest wound of God's people? being broken off, cut off from God.
0: When times get tough, we lean on our God. The question to be answered is, who is your God? Are you relying on wealth, success, or God himself? God desires for us to lean on him, to find him as God. We're in Jeremiah chapter 8 tonight with the question, what does your heart really treasure?
1: That gives light. It gives direction. It gives us wisdom. It gives us sufficient knowledge of who you are who we are, what we need to do to be reconciled to you. Now, Lord, I pray that as we open this sacred text, you will speak deep into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. We are in part 17 of Jeremiah. And we have seen the call of this young man who would have been around about 12 years of age when he was called to be a prophet and would have begun to share with people the things that the Lord was showing him. And I think the book of Jeremiah, he's the second of the major prophets. And Jeremiah is one of the reasons why I cannot be anything but a Christian. He's one of the the reasons because when I look at... The, the life and the Book of Jeremiah there is so much there is so much here that can only be God, and so i 'm absolutely absolutely compelled because here 's Jeremiah making prophecies, declaring prophecies of things that would happen within the next ten, twenty, thirty, forty years of his life, and yet he spoke things that would take place over the next six hundred years. And if you look closely, you'll see that some of the things that Jeremiah said are taking place right now. And so we have a man who spoke perhaps in, in three tiers, in three layers, in, in a very real sense. He spoke things that were to happen in his own day. That's amazing. It's amazing. And may the wonder of that grip our hearts as we see that this man was able to declare things that would happen within his own lifetime. And these things were written down. And then we have the history of how that was received and how he was ridiculed and how he was persecuted for what he had to say. And then those things happened. Now, if you, if you are struggling in your faith, you have to wonder, as a historical document, this is very well attested to, that here we have this document. And this man is saying I'm I'm declaring this from God this will happen within the next few years and then we have the historical evidence that it did you have to wonder as somebody who is exploring the things of the supernatural how did he do that and then even more than that how did this man prophesy about the messiah how did he know about Jesus And how is it that some of the things that came out of his mouth were to be uttered some 600 years later verbatim by Jesus Christ, word for word? How did he do that? And how did the prophet know that God would establish a new covenant that would bring in people, not just from the surrounds of Jerusalem, but to the furthest parts of the earth? And I think if you have a look at a map, Tasmania, perhaps New Zealand, is about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. And he spoke of what the Lord would do in our island. Isn't that amazing? I find that incredible. And it's, it's, it would have been very easy for people to have disputed what Jeremiah said, but there was no disputing it. And so we have the very early record of his his calling into being a prophetic ministry. We then have him at around about age 17, 18, beginning to stand publicly and begin to declare things publicly about the age of 20. He would have been inducted as a priest. He was the son of a priest. About the age of 20, he would have been able to participate in the temple ceremonies. And at that opportunity, he's standing in the gate, we read in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, where instead of offering the sacrifices, he declares the word of the Lord in front of the king at the risk of his own life. And for that, he is beaten within an inch of his life. We will read later on as we come into chapter 10 of this prophet, we're in, the first 17 verses of chapter 8 this morning, that Jeremiah gets to this part of his life in chapter 10 and he says to God, I quit. I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. I've got no friends. My family have disowned me. I can't go home. No one likes me. I'm sick of doing this. But then something rises in Jeremiah... It says, oh, God, you've captured my heart. You've captured my heart. So, God, I recognize my attitude needs adjusting. And he says this beautiful prayer, God, change me and correct me. But do it gently. That's my prayer. Do it gently. This prophet who spoke of the massive upheaval that God was going to bring is the prophet that asked God to change him in the process of of him calling the nation of Israel to change. In chapter 7, Jeremiah lists the litany of sins that the people were committing. And the biggest sin was, uh, he mentions things like adultery. He mentions things like idolatry. He mentions things like fornication. He then says there was murdering. He then says there was oppression of the poor and all of these things he's listing as if God was really ticked with each of these things. But then he says, here's the granddaddy of them all. He's ramping up to the worst sin. And in this process, he comes to, you have exchanged the glory of God. In a message reminiscent of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 of the people of his day, have exchanged the glory of God for images and things. And so they were worshipping the sun as the supreme God called Molech. They were worshipping the moon as his wife. She was called Astarte or Asherah. And she was called the queen of heaven. And the prophet Jeremiah denounces their devotion to the sun and the moon denounces it as, as one of the worst forms of idolatry but then he crowns it by saying this in all of this you claim to be serving and worshipping me in all of this you're just pretending that you actually are doing me a service and the people had so localized their their worship of God that their their concept of God was that he lives in that temple and they thought they could, as long as they went to the temple they were in the eyes of god but as soon as they left the temple they could do whatever they wanted and so we read in chapter 7 that god says to jeremiah have you seen what they're doing in the cities of judea have you seen what they're doing in the streets and it was this this ultimate indictment of their sin it wasn't the murder it wasn't the idolatry it wasn't the adultery the sexual sin It wasn't all this. It comes down to this, that the people were then worshipping the sun and the moon. And their ultimate expression of worship was to take their little babies, go down into the valley of Hinnom, which Jerusalem is a walled city. And outside the south wall, there is a, a valley Called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, became known as the Valley of Hinnom, and in Greek, valley or land is the word G, where we get the word geology, geography, and in the New Testament, the Valley of Hinnom is known as G or gehenna. And in, in Gehenna, this valley, there was a, a great big furnace where they would, in this valley, they would just throw their rubbish and their trash, and then. There's a certain part of the valley where the, the rubbish would pile up so much that they built a furnace just to burn the rubbish. That was the place called Tophet. It's, it's written T O P H E T H. Tophet looks like Tophet, but it's pronounced Tophet. And in Tophet, the people would take their babies, lift up their babies, and say, We give this to you, Molech, and throw their babies into the furnace. And all the while, think that this was acceptable to God. And this is what. False religion will do it will give you a sense that you are in control because the people were doing this as a way of saying this object of our fertility, our fruitfulness, our sexual union, we give this to you so that we may be, we may be more blessed and fruitful and productive. They would practice acts of immorality with temple prostitutes in front of an Asher a pole on a hill overlooking their farms. And the prophet Jeremiah denounces this. He denounces it. And so now we come, having chapter 7 is where he lists these sins and he culminates this with the sins that were taking place at Tophet, what they were doing to children. And now he says, this is how God will judge. Come with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. At that time declares the Lord, The bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and the host of the heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, which they have sought and worshipped and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. What's happening here is the prophet Jeremiah is looking to that day when Babylon would ultimately invade Jerusalem. And inv- invading the, uh, Jerusalem back in those days, armies were paid by plunder. And the plunder they got was their wages. And so many of the soldiers would literally go into the tombs of the kings where they were buried with their rings and jewelry and take the jewelry from the tombs. And in order to do that, they would take the bones and just throw them out of the tombs. It's an act of desecration. But to see how God is telling the people through the prophet Jeremiah how it will happen. It will happen in full view of your God, the sun of your God, the moon. See what they do to help you at that time. They will do nothing for you. How dare you insult me like this? I will insult your memory, God is saying. And this very thing that the prophet says was going to happen did indeed happen. The people's memory, the bones were desecrated and strewn out before their god the sun their god the moon you see there where it says in verse 2 spread before the sun and the moon and the host of heaven whom they had loved and served what a tragic thing verse 4 then you shall say to them thus says the lord when men fall do they not rise again if one turns away does he not return why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding they hold fast to deceit they refuse to return I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, the swallow and the crane. Keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. The prophet is saying in all of this, in all of the heartache and the tragedy, in all of the things that were going wrong. And it's in tough times that you seek your God, whatever your God is. For some people, their God is a bottle of something. For some people, their God is a bottle of tablets or a a capsule or a needle for some people, their God is sex, their God is work. Whatever you do when you're under affliction, trial and heartache and hard times, whatever you do will tell will be very telling of what you really treasure as your God. And here God is saying, in the midst of all of the, the heartache that, come, that, that comes your way, you still cry out to the sun God, you still cry out to the moon and God is saying that don't don't say your heart belongs to me. If when the times that you're living get really tough, you don't call upon me. And the prophet is aching with the heart of God. And we've got to see what God is saying here too, that none of this is working for them. Times are still horrid for them. And what does it take What does it take for God to get through to people? What does it take? The story of the prodigal, it took rock bottom. Does it take rock bottom for us to realize how much we need God? Does it take deprivation for us to realize that we should be thankful to God? What does it take? What does it take? Here, really, we could highlight this point that when all your false gods fail, the real God should be obvious. The real God should be obvious. I was tempted to bring out some books that I've bought recently by converted atheists, people who have waged a campaign against God. Now, I love it when that happens, because I think, oh, this will be interesting to see who wins this fight. I'll just step back and let them have it out. And the latest one was, anyone heard of Christopher Hitchens? Christopher Hitchens uh, is, a, is a very vocal atheist who's written the book, uh, God is not good. How religion spoils everything, poisons everything. Well, Christopher Hitchens is um, an, an amazing writer. He writes for Vanity Fair magazine in New York. He's a very gifted writer who's now in the last few months, been diagnosed with cancer. His brother, Peter Hitchens, who also was a very vocal atheist, campaigning against God, recently encountered God, has converted to Christianity and written a book about why all atheists should stop raging against God and bow down and worship him. (laughs) I love stories like that. And we could think of other people earlier um, or late last century, think of Professor Anthony Flew, who wrote a book this thick, this thick, no kidding, this thick on why there's no God. And when he was 86, he released a press statement saying that he was wrong and that now based on all the evidence, there must be a God. And I think it was Collins that, published his book they had the book titled there is no god Anthony Flew and the no has been written out in crayon there is a god and these people had sought all their lives to live a logically consistent life as if there was no god and they come to the inevitable conclusion that the god of the bible is rather obvious and that the most natural response we can participate in is surrendering to him What does God have to do? God does all he can to help people to repent. We read on in this passage, verse 8. How can we say, or how can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. This is what would happen eventually with the Babylonians. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Prophet to priest, God says... Every one of them deals falsely. If you are wanting to meet with God and encounter somebody in society that should know Him, surely it's the prophets and the priests. Surely. Surely. And here, the people that claimed, I know God, were living as if God was a rogue. Not worth knowing. How do you think that makes the heart of God feel when his people who claim to know him represent him like that? Do you pick up? If you touch your page, is it hot? Can Can you feel the breath of the nostrils of God on here? He's like seething. And don't give me any of this mamsy, pamsy Jesus flowing daffodils in the air. He doesn't get angry. You haven't read Jeremiah. God gets ticked. And just because he gets ticked, like any parent, any parent, you know you can love your children dearly. But there are times when you get angry with your children and you love them no less. And God's love is the same. He loves us no less. But he has standards. God expects that those who claim to know him will be fruitful. I want you to see this they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace peace when there is no peace he's already raised this in chapter 6 and verse 14 when they were ashamed uh, were they ashamed when they committed abomination no they were not ashamed at all They, they did not know how to blush therefore they shall fall among the fallen when i punish them they shall be overthrown says the lord Notice this, God expects those that claim to know him to be fruitful. I want to remind you of a New Testament illustration of this in a moment. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. What does that, When you read that, when I come for them, there's no figs on the fig tree. What, does that remind you of anything Jesus did? Remember in Mark chapter 11, In Mark chapter 11, Jesus is walking along. You can pick this up from about verse 11 or so, verse 13, 14, 11, 12, 13, 14. In there where Jesus is walking and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree in leaf. And he he goes, it's in leaf. He goes over and there's, there's no figs on it. So what does he do? He curses it. Now, I remember the first time I read that and thought,
0: poor little fig
1: tree. I have a fig tree in my backyard. I've tried killing it; they don't die. Now I know why. They are a cursed tree. They just keep coming back and haunting you. They, you know. I saw somebody. Obviously, they had a billboard letting people know that God hates figs. Uh, they spelt it wrong. Uh, God hates fags or something. But they, 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 obviously couldn't spell. But it's figs. Just if you ever see that sign, it's just let them know. It's a spelling mistake. It's figs. And. <laughs> And here, Jesus curses the fig tree. The disciples see it, Mark eleven, and they go, hmm. Oh, well. and they they walk and they and then they come back, and they go past this withered, dry, crusty, leafy, dead-looking thing and go, ooh. I mean, figs look bad at the best of times but dried figs look like really bad (laughs) oh dear anyway and the disciples say to Jesus hey um Jesus is that the is that the fig tree you cursed and Jesus turns to them and says something that if you don't get it you'll think random Jesus says this, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Have faith in God. And you think, did 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 anyone say something about faith? I thought we were talking about figs. Two points here. Firstly, Jesus, the creator... When he comes looking for fruit, you'd better deliver. You'd better be ready. And I know that there are some people thinking, well, I know one day I'll stand before God and give an account of my life. I'll be about 85, 88, 95. I've got plenty of time. No, you don't necessarily have plenty of time. You don't. You don't know how much time you have. And right now is the time when you should be as fruitful as you can for the Lord. Secondly, the word faith to a Hebrew is different than the word faith to us. When we hear faith, we think of wishful thinking, hoping for something. But faith to a Hebrew, in, in fact, in the Hebrew language, there is no word faith. The only word is faithful and it demands, it, it, it conjures up the picture of what you do. You are faithful. You are faithful in doing something. And Jesus is saying Here's this fig tree he's cursed. It should have given him fruit and it didn't. And, And he says, you better have faith. Have faith. In other words, you must always be found faithful. You must always be found faithful. And so we have this picture that Jesus has given. And here, the people that claim to know God should really be fruitful. And I'll come back to this in a moment as we conclude this message. Verse 14. Why do we sit still, gather together, let us go into the fortified cities and perish there? For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish And he has given us poisoned water to drink because we've sinned against the Lord. Now, in one sense, you could read this and go, oh, now they're starting to get it. But in another sense, if you read this, they're saying, what's the point of serving God? What's the point? He just gives us poisoned water to drink. Might as well just die. It's actually kind of an insult to God. And it comes from something I think is being said here earlier the prophet and the priest deal falsely come back before that verse 10 from the least to the greatest everyone is greedy for unjust gain these people see god as a means to success and success is whatever you want you can have now now god calls that type of thinking from prophet to priest he says this is dealing falsely this is these people, the prophets and the priests, were supposed to heal the wound of my people. What's the biggest wound of God's people? Being broken off, cut off from God. And the prophet and the priest were meant to heal the wound, bring people back into relationship with God. And the prophet and the priest instead were going where the bucks were, wherever the big dollars were. And God says, this is false this is wrong and the spirit of this is if God doesn't give me what I want why should I serve him what what I don't get that may that not enter our heart Rabbi Zacharias has just written a book that addresses this issue that most Christians will at some point struggle with and it's this why doesn't God answer my prayer and for some Christians I think the temptation is to think, when I pray, God must respond. And if he doesn't, he's not worth following. What? What? Stop. Take a reality check. Where did you get that thinking from? It's not, God, you must do what I say. Can I suggest to you we reverse the equation? God, I'll do whatever you say. Let's not be greedy for gain. In fact, greed for money will obscure your spiritual vision. Some people are going to be offered another an extra fifty cents an hour to work on Sunday to avoid church when they know church does them good. But for fifty cents, they can eight hours, they can earn a whole extra four bucks. They'd sell their soul for four bucks. Let's be careful that our hearts are not running after greed. Verse 15: We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. Verse 16, the snorting of their horses is heard from Dan and the sound of the neighing of their their stallions. The whole land quakes. So here's Jeremiah foretelling the impending invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, which was indeed to take place. They come and devour the land and all that fills it and the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, verse 17, I'm sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed and they will bite you. This is God. Speaking of their doom at the hand of the Babylonians. So here's some closing thoughts from this section. You will be afflicted. You will. You will have tough times. You will. If you are are someone who has never had a tough time, try breathing. Try living. Get a pulse. You will have tough times. People will let you down. People will betray you. Things will not go your way. Your car will break down at the most inconvenient time. I'm not speaking these things into your existence. I'm just recalling my life so far. These things happen in life. It's what life is all about. Romans 8.20 says, All of creation is subject to futility. Futility is heartache, disappointment, frustration, sickness, disease. All the stuff that will cause you to be afflicted. So here's the question. In times of affliction, you need to draw closer to God, not to your gods. If you are battling with alcohol, you've got the wrong god. You need God's help. And if you are battling with alcohol, please let us help you. Let us administer the grace of God and do what we can to help you. In times of affliction, when times get tough, you may run into the bed of someone who is not your spouse. That's your God. If that's you, if you have an addiction to sex, maybe internet porn, whatever, let us help you. We, we want to see you delivered from that. Whatever it is that you run to when times get tough, for some people... So let's be careful that we're drawing near to God. Here's the question from this text that I want to ask myself because I read this and I go, Oh God, you could turn up any time and examine my life and I can be very busy for you, but am I being fruitful? I want to be fruitful for God. Will you please pray that God will allow me to be more fruitful for him? I read in Philemon, is it verse 5, where Paul prays that their witness would be effective, effective, fruitful I want my witness to be effective and fruitful I really do I want what we do to be fruitful for God I hate it when people say you know I pay for my petrol and the guy at the counter will say hey how's it going being busy sometimes I just say I'd like to say I'd like to say no actually just being fruitful (laughs) because they're not necessarily the same And I think there's something in our heart, if we're not being active, 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 we feel like we're not really pulling our weight. Be fruitful for God. You see where it started to go wrong for these people? Their heart. Their heart was inclined after their comfort and their well-being and not a surrendered heart to God. So it starts with a surrendered heart. And... I've had a few people in this church tell me that they've spoken with people who have ridiculed them for being a Christian and have ridiculed their commitment to Christ and commitment to church. and They've, they've had a wonderful comeback and it's a very loving comeback. And the comeback goes like this, and this is kind of in line with this closing thought. You, you, you're very confident there's no God. How confident would you be if we prayed together right now, you and I, for God to do whatever it took To reveal himself to you and to show you your true condition before him. Would you please repeat this prayer after me? Hmm, all of a sudden the atmosphere changes. Hmm, but it's a prayer I want to pray all the time. I don't want to be finger wagging. I want to be palm uplifting. (laughs) I want to be going, oh God, I want my heart right before you. And I want you to have your way in my life. And if you're struggling with the thought of unanswered prayer... Start praying that. See if God answers that. Pretty much guarantee will. Do you know Christ? Is Christ the Lord of your life? Here's another way of asking that same question. Is Christ your God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we desperately need you. We need you to have your way in our lives. We pray, Father, that as a church we will not be so caught up in being formal and busy and looking active that we actually forget to be like Mary rather than Martha and just sit at your feet and just open up our heart to you and say, Jesus, speak your word and I'll receive it. Speak your word and nourish my soul. Take the cares and the worries of my heart. Take all of my burdens, all of those false gods that I've set up in my heart. Please clean out my heart. Take them from me. I want to live for you. That you will pray that prayer that means you you can come to know God as your Saviour, as your guide, but as your God. And it's a prayer that sounds something like this, Oh God, please forgive me of my sin. Amen.
0: What does your heart really treasure? We find out when life gets tough because it's what we hang on to the most. Make God your treasure and reach for Him. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's programme, Jeremiah Session 17 What Does Your Heart Really Treasure?, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at PO Box 1143 Lagana, Tasmania 7277 or via the website FindingTruthMatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e newsletter Perspectives, visit FindingTruthMatters.org and click subscribe.